even here at Advantage now, since I since I've been here, I spend a lot of time with my partners and the great team we have and colleagues looking at companies, looking at deals, looking at are we going to invest in them. And as a chief impact officer, one of the things I'm always looking for is how much there is a culture of listening evidenced by what we learn about that company and doing the due diligence to get ready to decide to invest in them. You can really learn a lot. And bringing that home to your question, that's the role of the leader. You are listening to the Real Leaders Podcast, where leaders keep it real. I'm your host, Kevin Edwards, and those insights come from Sandra M. Moore, the Chief Impact Officer at Advantage Capital, who claims leaders who build cultures of good listeners tend to be on the forefront of change. In today's episode, Moore shares her experiences as a judge for the United States Equal Employment Opportunity Commission, how for-profit companies can create more impact than nonprofits, and the power of including unique perspectives. So without further ado, ladies and gentlemen, please give it up for the real Sandra M. Moore. Enjoy. We're here now, and Sandra, you're coming in from St. Louis. Is that what you just told me earlier? I am in St. Louis, yes. Where, where are you from originally, Sandra? I am from St. Louis. You it's my home. Yep. The home of great legends like Nellie, Akon. <laughs> Who else is from St. Louis? It's clearly generational that you would start with Nellie. <laughs> but yes, a, a wonderful icon. We've got all kinds of icons from St. Louis. I guess if you ask me about an icon, it's going to be uh, Frankie Muse Freeman, who called this home for so many years, we will claim her. Um, well, it, it, today, I, you know... It's February. It's Black History Month. And we started, I had a, we had a team call earlier today, Sandra, and we wanted to kind of throw in a little flavor with Black History Month because it's such an unrepresented month of the year. And it's such a cool month of the year, you know. And so we, uh, we threw out today uh, in our meeting, um, uh, one of the act, sorry, the, the, one of the famous musicians uh, that is, is notable for kind of changing rock and roll and the story goes, this is, a, this is Robert Johnson I'm talking about. And the story goes with him, with the, uh, the crossroads in Clarksdale, Mississippi. Uh, legend has it, he uh, was kind of a novice guitar player. Uh, and then went on for, I think, a year. We just went out of sight, didn't make contact with anybody. Until he went to the crossroads in Clarksdale, Mississippi, and, and gave his soul to the devil for um, the uh, the best gar- guitar playing skills uh, in, the, in the American South. And to this day, people like Jimi Hendrix, uh, other uh, novel rock and roll artists, listen to his albums to pick up uh, some of his his, guti- his key guitar playing skills. So I thought that was a really interesting character that we kind of started with. Have you heard of him before? I have. Um, actually, I think our local black rep did a, did a, did a, did a play uh, rec- recognizing him. Uh, now, you know, you're pushing into space that I should be real familiar with because my husband's a musician, but you can quickly move on because he's the expert and not me. <laughs> well, what is your expertise? I saw, uh, I noticed that you were a judge at one point in time. I was. That, too, is an interesting question. You told me this was going to be conversational. So uh, my expertise is doing stuff that I'm passionate about and that I deeply believe in. And generally from a legal platform, believe it or not, I'm a lawyer by training 
And I really believe that uh, my legal training is the foundation and basis of everything that I've done. And if you just kind of follow a through line, it's all about uh, initially it was the law representing uh, poor people. That's why I went to law school. And then it was the law uh, as a mechanism for shifting policy. That's what I was doing as a judge. I know that would have made me uh, as an administrative judge and that would have made me an activist judge. And yeah, I'm proud of that. And then it's the law moved me into policy. Uh, and then um, now in practice, in a variety of ways, the law is the backdrop against which I push on things. So said so it was around equal opportunity, uh, right? And it was, is that the, the commission that you're working on? Right. Yeah, I was the federal administrative judge with the Equal Employment Opportunity Commission for about 11 years early in my career. Okay. What What is... Uh, you know, employment, employment opportunity, equal opportunity mean to you specifically? And how do you kind of see that playing out now that you're on this side of the private sector and investing? Wow, Kevin, that's a very interesting question. Well, I'm going to answer it in two parts, what it meant then and then how I see it playing out now. What it meant for me then is, um, as as I said just a minute ago, you know, the law for me has always been a platform for changing the things that I thought didn't work. And I happened to like labor law. I fell into it uh, out of, uh, after law school. Um, and uh, it, it really resonated with me that the most important thing, if you were going to work, is that you have the opportunity to be the best that you could be and do everything that you could to move yourself through that workplace. And so against that backdrop, I did I tried represented people and tried cases in the in the labor law space, um, got some experience around discrimination and then got the opportunity to join our discrimination employment, representing people who are having those kinds of challenges. And then I got the opportunity to join the Equal Employment Opportunity Commission as an administrative judge. And uh, it, it worked for me. It um, This at EEOC, what you do is you hear cases of discrimination filed against the federal government as an employer. And as you know, the federal government is the largest employer, um, public employer. And um, when civilian employees file those kinds of complaints, the administrative process is the end of the line for the governmental agency. So I heard a lot of cases everywhere, the Postal Service, the IRS, anywhere you can think of where people are working for the government. And what I came to quickly realize and treasured is when I found discrimination and I I based on the, the application of the law to the evidence, and I ruled it against an employer, a government employer, it wasn't ever going to wind up in federal court because the administrative process ended the question with regard to the employer. So I issue a decision, it would go up to the commission. And at that time, the chairman of the commission was Clarence Thomas. And uh, if the commission agreed with me, then that was it. Postal Service had to do what Judge Moore said you had to do. And the impact of that, the broad impact of that really resonated with me. And I heard a bunch of really tough, nasty cases that shifted policy in government agencies. And it made me, you know, I was really very proud, very happy of that, about that. 
Well, Sandra, would you mind sharing a few of those? I was really interested to kind of hear what you had to deal with, especially some of those crazy cases. I mean, keep in mind, this is a you know commission that was started in 1964 for most people who don't know. And, you know, since then, a lot more people are more outspoken about what they deal with on a day to day basis. So I was interested to kind of hear what you experienced. Well, you know, I heard a bunch of cases uh, in my 11 years there. And I'm going to tell you that the block of cases that there were two blocks of cases, kinds of cases that had the most impact on me. The first word, uh, what was called then discrimination on the basis of handicap cases. And that was long before the ADA. The ADA came in 19 uh, in 1990. But it was based on the federal law, which was the Rehabilitation Act of 1973. And I became quite an expert in um, the um, handicap discrimination cases, as they were commonly called then. I had a, uh, my older brother was uh, severely disabled. I had a sensitivity to uh, what that meant inside of a, a inside of a family and inside of a life. And so those cases resonated with me. I got very good at them and they were very important. And I'll tell you a block of cases that just blew me away. I heard them in Kentucky at a group of U.S. Uh, Postal Service installations and they were filed by a hearing employee on behalf of a set of deaf employees who uh, the hearing employee said was being discriminated against. And I found a whole series of discrimination uh, findings against that postal service uh, around stories like this. The fact pattern was, oh, well, we kicked the the deaf employees because how else are you going to get their attention? They can't hear. Or yes, we pinched them in order to get them to do something we want them to do because they can't hear. One of the cases that that just rocked me to my core and I found against the Postal Service involved the fact that the deaf employees were not given any time um, for breaks during the workday because or to just to communicate with their other uh comrades because they talk with their hands and they were working the, the machines where you feed the mail through the machines. Well, you can't stop feeding the mail through the machines, according to the Postal Service, to talk with your hands. So they weren't given any accommodation for the fact that they were using sign language. So those cases, those kind of cases, when you could find against the agency, make them change the policy, really very, very important. And then early on in my career at EEOC, I heard a, case, a set of sex discrimination cases, sexual harassment cases, rather, that... Uh, really rocked me to my core. I'm a pretty tough old girl and I was a pretty tough young girl and I didn't really uh, have much patience for um, any men stepping out of line. So I didn't have the view that I came to have about how difficult it can be for women who may not be as wily as I am in the workplace. So I started hearing a block of cases. These were at the army. Uh, up in up in up in uh, uh, Kansas, and I started seeing and hearing cases of women who were telling stories of being harassed on the job, and I quickly came to understand that I really had to find in their favor. I had to push that agency to change its behavior because they were not capable of fighting back on their own, and it was it was very eye opening for me. You know, I I, I had to. I had to really do some self-reflection to say, hey, Sandra, you're not applying your standard to this particular conduct because you would punch that guy in the nose and then run over him with your vehicle. 
Uh, you, you you really cannot expect every woman to 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 be to be required to behave that way. You got to change the system. So, two sets of cases, the kinds of stuff that I heard, you know, and there was a lot of what my mother would call flotsam and jetsam along the way. I heard a lot of cases that amounted to little or nothing, but um, a good number that were very serious around policy violations by the United States government as an employer. Sandra, it seems like you've, you've all, you know, seen it all, you know, and, and in these instances, you feel like a sense of responsibility for those people who can't maybe speak for themselves when you're in a position of power like that. Do you feel like most people in decision-making positions in the private sector, whether it's a leader of an organization, do you think they feel that same responsibility for their employees who have maybe had those disabilities or disadvantages? I do. Or else we'd still be sitting back there. Hmm. I do. And what can a CEO maybe think about in order to make sure that uh, they don't, they can avoid cases like this uh, from, I mean, you're in big organizations, a thousand people, maybe 5,000 people. Sometimes hard to you know, kind of keep a invisible hand over everybody. What are some things that you think a CEO of an organization, a leader of an organization can do to avoid some of these uh, claims? Well, it's, it's what a CEO or a leader of an organization has to do to lead. I mean, part of, part of you know, what, what we tease that I would talk about today is looking at things through, you know, what kind of lens are you looking through? With regard to this kind of behavior in the workplace, discrimination or retaliatory behavior, the law is the law is the law. Follow it. Leaders have to set the example that we, no matter how difficult we might internally believe this is, this is the law and we shall follow it. The other part of that, though, is really the lens of being uh, a listener and a learner as a leader in your organization, because you can be following the law and still have an environment that is totally untenable and, 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 and repressive for certain groups of people. And the leader's responsibility is to tune your lens into what is really happening. I call it creating a listening organization. I think the best leaders that I've ever dealt with and something that I've aspired to as a leader is to be a listener from the top of the organization down to the bottom. And um, even here at Advantage now, since since I've been here, I spend a lot of time with my partners and the great team we have and colleagues looking at companies, looking at deals, looking at are we going to invest in them. As a chief impact officer, one of the things I'm always looking for is how much there is a culture of listening evidenced by what we learn about that company and doing the due diligence to get ready to decide to invest in them. You can really learn a lot. And bringing that home to your question, that's the role of the leader is you've got follow the law, that's it. But then you've got to be listening to see if in fact what you what the law says you're doing and you're doing it, is it having the effect on your employees or in the environment the way that you want and the way the law is, law is intended. That there is no amount of uh, rules, regulations or anything like that can that can adjust and, and not adjust that can uh, identify that that's got to be a leader who's got his or her eyes open up and down the organization interesting so a culture of 
active listeners because there's a difference between you know listening and and hearing and actually comprehending you know, uh, you know what people are saying right and, and so that's that's an interesting topic now what are some challenges that you think we're facing in today's day and age in the war culture what are some things that stick out to you that you see on a daily basis Hmm. I, I, I think one of the biggest challenges that we are facing in, in the workplace, and, and again, um, I am where I am today. I bring years of experience to where I am today. But today, I, I am constantly looking at companies and at advantage. And I think one of the biggest challenges is um, wage growth and wage progression balanced against um, sustainability and profitability of, of, of our businesses. That's a real a real tension. And we we see it uh, at advantage. Our goal, you know, we we, we are we are a company that um, that really invests in businesses. That's 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 who we are. We're a growth oriented impact investor. We're looking for uh, companies that are willing to grow in distressed areas, willing to create wage opportunity, willing to create training opportunity, willing to create the opportunity for that employee to increase their own wealth while growing that business base. So we are that that we are always looking at that tension between profitability, sustainability, and profitability for the company, and what I see is a real tension, and that is wage growth and wage progression. For, for workers. And I, I think nationally we're about we're in the midst of that discussion, right? Can we afford in the middle of a pandemic to pay $15 an hour? But for the lens I say we got to think about is can we afford not to? Hmm. Elaborate on that a little bit more because, you know, I, I would, I, I'm in Central Oregon right now. It's a, a community of a lot of small businesses. My taxi driver on the way from the airport home and says, he's like, you know, I really don't agree with this $15 an hour thing because I'm a small business owner and I, I'd love to pay them $15, but I'm going to have to fire a few uh, in order to do that. So how, like, what's your stance on $15 an hour and, and in terms of wage growth other than just setting a, a price floor? So... What's my stance or what's my professional observation? So if you've looked at my background, you know, my stance is I want it to be $15 an hour. 20 sounds really good to me, too. Um, uh, But my professional observation is that it is a genuine and continuing balancing act. And I get that. And so I can't give you a stance because it's a business decision. But I can say to you that business owners have to be willing to dial their lens to reflect light on the the center of their situation, which is their workforce and their product and their business operation and see where they can make the adjustments. It can't be just a blanket. No, we can't afford it. It has to be. Can we afford not to? 
What else happens in the ripple effects of society when we don't have the ability for folks to earn enough money to live decently? And how do I weigh that against what it's going to do for my for my business and my sustainability? I don't think we explore that deeply enough. Um, we have seen uh, companies and I look at this I, um I didn't invent the data when I came to Advantage. It was here, but I started looking at it in the way that I look at it, not as a, as a finance person first language, but as a social scientist first language. And what uh, what we realized is that our businesses were as we that we were investing in were growing wages and they were climbing and nobody had ever really chronicled it hmm. to say back to companies You've got good wage progression here. First time I said that, I think one of my partners said, what is that? What is that you're talking about? But I looked at it and it's so so now we give that information back to our domestic companies and little infographics that we prepare uh, um, a couple times a year. And I I say to you, I believe that when you give business owners the information through a lens that is something like the effect of climbing wages or the opportunity created by climbing wages. They can and do make good decisions um, for their particular situation. So maybe they can't go to $15 an hour, but maybe they can go to 13. But if you never think about it, you say, oh, I just can't because I'm a small business and it's, you know, it's impossible for me to do. It's it's interesting. I like how you kind of phrase that. It's like, what's my personal stance and what's my professional, you know, uh, opinion? Because I think what we're really kind of attacking at here is like government intervention. And I think what you're saying is like, you know, it's up to the business owner. It's up to the leader. Can, can you do 13? You know, it, it's a choice that they have to make. Do you think like government does play a role in terms of this wage progression, in terms of uh, bringing people out of uh, poverty and giving them economic opportunity? Do you think that's something that the government control or the private sector should be taking uh, leadership on? Uh, Obviously, I believe that the government has a role. I spent a significant part of my career uh, working inside or right up next to government. But I am equally certain that government cannot do this alone. This being um, guide wage progression and guide economic upward mobility for our working population alone. It is a joint proposition. There are things that government can do that make it easier and more effective and more efficient for businesses to make money and do well and therefore have the opportunity when encouraged to look through the lens to do better by their employees. So it is, um, there is There is the need for public-private partnering to achieve this. One thing I will say for sure that I learned, because you saw that resume and you picked up what I did back there in being administrative judge. I I spent 16 years as as a not-for-profit leader. And what I figured out there, I was head of a comprehensive community development company that focused on human capital development in big community revitalization strategies that had housing at the core. So I partnered up with for-profit 
for-profit housing developers to help them plan for and implement all parts of their revitalization strategy that had people. So, you know, a big developer comes in and says, I'm going to take down these buildings that have a bunch of poor people in them, and I'm going to rebuild this area with mixed income and affordable housing. And they'd say, okay, at Urban Strategies, my old company and Sandy Moore, and now it's beautifully run by, by a, a colleague. Um, they'd say, well, what is it going to take for people in all of this equation? You know, who's got to move and who's got to move in and what systems do we need? And, that, and I did that for 16 years. That put me in every tough place in America that you can think of to go, you, you name it. And likely I've been there because we, we did a lot of business. Um, and in the, in the context of that, what I came to clearly understand, Kevin, and my colleagues at Advantage Capital have heard me say this many times, is that the private sector has got to be a driver in the change that we seek on major initiatives. There's just not enough public money that can be flexibly deployed or philanthropy that can be effectively deployed to attack the issues that really are holding us back as a nation. You've got to have the private sector in there. And and I mean, I just realized it in 16 years of doing deals and doing deals and doing deals and realizing that when I could get private capital focused on these people outcomes because it meant something to their bottom line outcome. I could get the money that we needed to do the things that we needed to do. Build a school, put up a new park, put in the, the put in the infer the the infrastructure, the technology infrastructure that the public sector couldn't do at that time. The private sector could do it when the connection was made between the private sector outcome and the public good. Hence, while you are in impact investing now, it makes a lot of sense, right? That like that's like the theory, right? You know, like that is it. There's a there's an economic gap of capital, like four trillion dollars worth, that needs to be funded to solve these problems in sustainable ways. That is relying right. relying on contributions and grants is unsustainable. You do need that capital philanthropy. And what excites me, Sandra, our organizations that you have invested in, you know, things like. Um, for instance, I don't know, Mark Wilson and Chime Solutions. I don't know if you're familiar with the organization. Mark Mark, Mark is a um, African-American CEO who came on the show last year and, and intentionally, that's that's kind of the, the thing here, he's intentionally starting his call centers in underserved communities in America. So in having terrific employment benefits, educating uh, their employees about uh, low-income housing, how to save up, uh, what it, you know, contribute to retirement funds, all of these things, like you mentioned, contribute to his bottom line. So what are some other ways that you've seen organizations that you've looked at um, intentionally try to solve a social or environmental problem and as they grow, you know, it, it, it makes them more money and solves that problem even further? We see lots of companies doing that because that's the lens that we're looking through, Right. We are looking for companies that are doing business to solve a business problem that has a a good social outcome. And increasingly, we are looking for intentionality in that. Now, I have to say that because sometimes 
the business owner is not necessarily focused on the for good outcome, particularly in the small to mid-sized businesses that are at the wheelhouse of our investment. Investing, we got three billion dollars in assets under management, but they are in small to mid-sized companies. They're not in micro companies, but small to mid-sized companies. And many times, those companies were not necessarily starting to do business for the purpose of doing good. But they're good leaders. They're good people. They are about growth and 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 opportunity. And we invest for that. And so we see this happening a lot in our portfolio. You talked about uh, um, the, the, the gentleman that you just talked about and growing yeah, solutions. This, yeah, time solutions you, 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 and growing what's now called the contact center space. We've invested there in the same with, with, with a woman out in Omaha who, who had the same vision. We are investing in in, in manufacturers who understand that it's important to go deeper into the labor pool so they're willing and we help to make it easy for them to do second chance hiring and to do um, um, second chance hiring with with training and benefits. We see we see a huge number of our companies probably 70% of the companies that we invest in, you're looking at a port, active portfolio, any time of maybe 200, 250 companies, maybe 70% of them who really have training opportunities. That's really important because you can't have wage progression if you don't have an opportunity for or a, 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 a way for employees to move up within your organization if you're growing. And when we when we invest in companies to do that, do that, and then we tell them that they are doing it, they begin to understand and they apply more intentionality to it. A frequent question is, well, OK, I, I guess I could partner with somebody to. Then you you see wonderful. We had small rural um, um um, oh my gosh, my, my mind is going blank, blank and I can't tell you the name of the company. Uh, Utah, um, a wonderful, wonderful company out in Utah that was at the cutting edge of um, medical research and drug, res- drug research, not medical research, that realized they could grow um, a workforce in rural Utah partnering with local universities and land-grant colleges. So again, um, you see companies doing their business with a good leadership focus. You help them to see the intentionality. You help them to see the good outcome that they are getting. And then they begin to apply even more intentionality to, uh, to that approach and you get for good results. Well, Sandra, it's it's incredible. And it seems like, just to allude back to what you're originally saying, you know, it's a culture of listening. Seems like they're listening to you. Seems like they're listening to the communities that they serve to make those changes. Um, now, when it comes to uh, just the overall impact of an organization, you say you, you go back to them and you tell them what's working. How do you measure something like this? How do you measure impact? Well, you know, um, 
refine your question and say, how does advantage capital measure in- impact? How does advantage capital, advantage capital measure impact? Excuse me. <laughs> and the reason for, you see, the administrative judge in me always comes out. Uh, the reason for me asking you to do that, Kevin, is because the, the, this field is, is, is a burgeoning baby the whole impact investing field and it's grown exponentially. You know, the numbers better than I do and um, measurement and metrics and tracking are ever changing and, and big and broad. So you really have an overall sort of ESG outcome that you're seeking when you call yourself an impact investor, but very often, what you are measuring is very particular to your sphere of influence or your theory of change. So against that backdrop, we at Advantage Capital measure what changes from top to bottom and bottom to top as a result of the investment that we make. And what changes across the um, components that we have at the center. So what changes for the business? What changes for the worker? What changes for the community? What changes up and down across those uh, components? And to do that, we look at business growth. We look at business opportunity to get follow-on capital. That is a reflection of the successfulness of that business. People don't keep investing money in you if you're not doing well. So we may be first, but then we look at how our business is growing and how are they attracting other capital. We look at um, the suite of benefits that businesses are able to 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 uh, provide their employees, um, and that tells us something about the growth, the intentionality, and the sustainability of those businesses. And then, and so we measure those things. And then we look from the perspective of the employee. We look at wages. We look at the suite of benefits and how accessible and easy they are for that employee. Health insurance is not very useful to you if you cannot, if your portion of the pay for that health insurance is unaffordable. So we look at the suite of benefits and we look at the accessibility of those benefits. We look at the opportunity for wealth creation. What is happening inside of the relationship between the business and the worker that allows the worker to accumulate some wealth. Is there a 401k? Is there a 401k match? Is there an opportunity for bonusing? The kinds of things that working people need in order to put real money into their pockets that they can use to to guard against life. All right. And then we look at, and so we look at training and, and the kinds of things that I've referenced earlier. Then we look at from the perspective of the community, what what is changing? We invest in operating businesses with growth potential intentionality more and more around growth and jobs and wages that are in distressed urban and rural communities. That's the other filter that we have on big portions of our investments. So that gives you an opportunity to see the impact of the business investment in that community. So again, Look up and down from top to bottom, what's happening to the business, what's happening to the workers, what's happening to the surrounding community. And increasingly, uh, I am looking at chief impact officer. They let me play a little bit. I am looking at what 
what effect that is having on public policy. Hmm. What's happening with those investments? What's happening in that business? And what's the effect on public policy? Are we putting people to work and taking them off of public benefits? We track that. We measure that. Are we uh, putting people to work and watching our recidivism go down? We have one partner in particular that helps us with um, second chance employment that's beginning to track that data. But again, those metrics, we call them our tertiary, our third level metrics, and um, they are the chief impact officer's serious playground right now. Sedges, it seems like there's a lot of things you take into account to consider an organization as an impact organization or just kind of benchmark maybe where they are at. What's the transformation uh, of their workers, of the community, a stakeholder approach to this? A lot of business owners listening to this right now may be saying, hey, I'm an impact organization too. And I'm giving people jobs. It's essential. Right. You know, like, what to you distinguishes an impact organization from a non impact organization? Because it's a thing I've been trying to figure out. And it's it's a lot of blurred lines right now. That is that really is a very, very interesting question. Um, and I think I would answer this way. We're in, we're an investment firm. Yeah. So we are looking but we're a double bottom line impact investor. So we are looking and have a wonderful team of mostly young people, but they're not, everybody seems young to me, uh, uh, sourcing deals. And they are looking for good opportunities for our capital to go to work around the things that are our priorities. And you've heard me talk about that. I don't necessarily spend time looking at whether the businesses that are in that big pool are impact businesses. That's not the first screen that we apply. We apply the screen of our metrics. Will it, first of all, do we have the kind of capital that they need in the way that they need it that will be both profitable for us and good for them? And then are they interested in growing jobs and growing opportunity and distressed urban or rural communities and things like that. And and so our screen is not whether they, the business, is itself an impact business, but rather the business is situated in a way that our capital will help and they are willing, either currently engaged or willing to engage in helping to get those outcomes. You know, if they say we want your capital, but uh, we're probably not going to grow any jobs in the next uh, five years while we have it. Well, I wouldn't say that they aren't an impact business. Maybe there is some other contribution that they make to their communities that causes them to be an impact business. But they mean they wouldn't be a business that would that necessarily would get our capital. Does that make sense? It makes a lot of sense. Yeah. I mean, good leadership, right? It's like a, like you mentioned ESG, it's like a risk lens for good management. It's you right. know, having a focus on more than just bottom line, taking into account more than just, uh, you know, your, your assets, your liabilities and, and your equity measuring more, uh, things that actually right. matter, the human cost to different things, right? It's, it's, That's right. it's important. Now in the news lately, uh, we've all seen it. everyone listens, like, Oh, he's going to bring it up again. You know, Robin hood with the, with the <laughs> stock trading, right. You know, it's like, but here's the thing. This is what I'm alluding to is, 
people sometimes worry that people in a private sector, when you amass so much capital and you have so much wealth power, you could potentially make decisions that do not benefit humanity. It may be a sense of greenwashing. How important is the leadership in these investment decision makings that you're, you're funding these organizations that you're trusting aren't going to make decisions like this that do not benefit uh, mankind, humankind. Well, why don't you just give me an easy, easy question, Kevin? Never, just never going to do that. Something that I can, I, I mean, I don't, I don't know. I don't know the answer. I don't know. No one knows the answer. I don't know the answer. I, I I know what I want the answer to be. You know, I want there to be a set of screens that quickly um, um, uh, illuminate greenwashing, but they don't exist, right? And and we're in an in a an emerging field here with impact investing. Now, advantages and been doing business this way for almost thirty years. I've been here four years. It was a very profitable company when I came here. And quite frankly, I wanted to be more profitable when I leave. But I didn't create this. I added a lens that caused us here at Advantage to look at things a little differently and began to really line up around the impactful things that we have been doing. So I know what Advantage does, but I don't know how we are going to get to a screen that really cuts out the bad actors. I will say this. Mm. One of the things that I think is very, very, very important, and I think there is the, some research is beginning in this area, is we need to figure out and have some range of return, expected return uh, on investment that is reasonable evidence of when matched up with outcomes, reasonable evidence of impact investing. It is very, very hard to, to tell me, the chief impact officer, that we want to get this set of outcomes and we want high double digit returns too. Um, and I don't, and, 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 and that becomes increasingly hard to, to get to and get the outcomes. So some work has got to be done there um, and some building of an agreed upon concessionary framework uh, that makes these conversations uh, more real in terms of what the outcome. We we have those conversations internally at Advantage. And I think there has to be a larger conversation around this ROI and and impact outcomes and what's the balancing that needs to happen there. And I don't I don't see any conversation going that way soon, but you asked me to dream. Oh, let's continue this conversation then. Uh, the framework you mentioned, private-public partnerships, you've also mentioned. You also mentioned Ellie, how you measure the impact of policy change. Now, Sandra, I, I, I'm not in California today, but that's my current residence. And I voted on um, a policy that was talking about diversity on the board. And so it was about uh, so essentially for people that don't know in California, there's a legislation that uh, was passed that Gavin Newsom signed into uh, law that requires corporations to have based on how many board representatives they have a certain ratio of uh, minority groups on that board. Uh, so if you have three people, you'll need one. Uh, it should be someone with either a disability, like you mentioned, your brother, or it could be someone that's uh, uh, in the LGBTQBT uh, community, 
uh, or someone that is non-white. So that is what has been signed into law, and there's ratios on that. That's that's government intervention playing a role at the board decision-making level. Do you see that being a good thing for business and inclusion in the community? Obviously, like I love like people need to see them, people like themselves in a, in a decision-making uh, ability. But do you see that uh, playing a role in, in increasing impact uh, in, in those local communities that those organizations serve? Yes. Yes. A strong and affirmative yes. Now I'm asking, answering your question, do I see that as playing a role in increasing impact? And the answer is yes, mm. because I brought as... You can go to the website, you'll see it. It's no secret. I am the only black and the only woman MD at Advantage Capital. Mm. Well, I bring a lens that my my white male counterparts don't have. It's right. just plain and simple. And so that's what diversity does. It adds depth and it shines light and reflects and, and, and offers new reflections lens when you have diversity. Now, you didn't ask me this question, but that never stopped me from giving an answer to anything. So what do I feel about legislating that? That's tough. The one side of me says every major change around equality and equity that we've experienced in this country has been born out of some legislation. We just never figured it out on our own and decided to do it because it was the right thing to do. But at the same time, um, that has created its own limitations because what you legislate or what you count is all that people do. So it's very challenging because ultimately we've got to change the way we perceive um, the the benefit of difference. Um, I once did a little talk at one of my kids' schools. I think it was my daughter's school. And it was, as one might expect, during Black History Month. And I was invited to come and speak. And I talked about the power of the exchange. And just recently, a young person who was a student there wrote to me about having remembered that lecture. But but we've got to do some, and I think we're in the, in the midst of doing it uh, now in America, and that is really understand the value of the exchange, of the changing and exchange of ideas. That's at the core of what is going to cause us to change our behavior, but we may have to start with legislation to make it happen. Right, exactly, exactly. Now, how would you feel if you got put on a board because now your company just has to add someone from a diverse background. How would I feel? Yeah. Just like you're getting out on the board just because a lot tells, tells the company they have to do that now, not just because of who you are and because you're a great leader and because you have all this experience. That is a really loaded question, Kevin. That's not fair. Well, it's interesting because, you know, like MLK, right? Like the greatest leader of all time is like, you know, you shouldn't judge people on the content of their skin, but the, the content of their character, the color of their skin, the content of their character. But yet it's like you pass this law that says, and I, I'm not, I don't know much about the law and like how it's impacting people. But like, if I, like, if I were gone to a board just because the color of my skin or if I had a disability, I'd be asking the question, why wasn't I on the board originally? And not necessarily why, you know, I got on the board just now. 
So you told me when I agreed to do this talk that we would have a conversation and that I shouldn't filter, right? I wish I could see how many people were listening or have a projection of how many people will plug in later. But I'm going to take you at your word and I'm going to answer. Where there is a need to change an outcome, I don't care why you put me there. But that's a very personal answer. It is a very personal answer. I am very senior and and I actually felt this way when I was younger, but it's a it's a it's a mindset. It is a, a it, it is a very personal decision. But what I will say to you is if there's a job that needs to get done, I don't care why you put me there. Right. And what you think about that is really up to you. And the reason that I say, though, that that is an unfair answer, because this whole conversation has been at the core of affirmative action and and quotas and targets. And that's an area fraught with lots of personal and professional pain and mishap. So I've given you my answer. Mm. Put me on your boards because you need a black woman. I'm good. I'm going to do the work that needs to get done. But the you've asked a very difficult question because it doesn't work that way for everyone. Right. Right. Yeah. There's there's no one answer for everything, especially with, when you're a leader. Like you cannot please everybody with just no. one positive strategy. And I think this is a, it's probably a question that'll be asked for centuries and centuries. Right. Like I don't think there'll there will ever be a right answer, but very situational. I think it kind of comes down to kind of what you were alluding to earlier. It's like the leadership. You know, just listening. Right. Listening. Right. And, and, you know, it really and it really is tough um, because everyone wants to be valued for uh, who they are and what they do and what they contribute. And um, but somehow in America, we've had to frequently legislate as that first plank of uh, creating a pathway to equality. And we haven't gotten there yet, but uh, that seems to be the methodology that we work with. So, Sandra, what type of change would you like to see? I know like before we, we, we had a couple of conversations beforehand, you're like, you know what, I, I'd love to share kind of what's going on right now in the world and kind of how I could like to see some change. What, what change would you like to see uh, when it comes to your role um, at Advantage Capital from your experience? Well, uh, I, I like where we're headed. And I like where the impact investing uh, um, industry is headed. Um, I want, and so by that, I mean, I like where we're headed. I like the fact that we are every day more and more becoming completely convinced and completely entangled in a good way in um, profitably driving change. Um, in our in our sphere, and I see that, and that's small to mid-sized business business investing in distressed areas, with all the things that I've talked about, good job creation, and so forth. And I see similarly uh, in other uh, impact investing sectors that same kind of push. I like that. Um, I one of the things that I really want to see is and it's something that we at Advantage are working on is more intentional investing in minority and women owned firms that need to grow. We really, really need to, to tighten our 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 lens on that 
and really with some intentionality drive that money there for the purpose of wealth creation, for the purpose of um, leadership development, for the purpose of generational wealth creation. I mean, we have got to attack that. And I do see that there is some energy happening. Um, Again, born out of strife, out of so many of the inequities that were laying bare uh, last year. They were not new to people of color. They were not new to oppressed people, but were laying bare uh, last year. So I do see some energy there, and I really like that a lot. My big goal um, for advantage and in the industry, and I probably, you know, I may have to call you, you may have to put me back on here so I can be do a job search once I say the next thing is my big goal for advantage and and in the industry is for people to realize how much good you can do profitably and be more intentional about it. And that requires something that I say in my head all the time. Money can't be the end all, but money can't be the barrier, you know, and 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 every day I see us growing more at advantage, understanding we got to make money. We want to make money. We work hard. We deserve to make money, but it can't be the be all. Mm. It can't be everything that we exist for. And it also cannot be the barrier. We've got to be willing to drive money to places where it wouldn't otherwise go. And I really hope and pray and really want for the investment industry to really understand that so that we can quadruple uh, the work that gets done in the space where we work. I was just about to ask you then, Sandra, like what misconceptions do you think traditional investors have about having, like you mentioned, a double impact? I don't know what big misconceptions they have. Well, Scott, I mean, you've worked in nonprofits. You've worked, uh, you know, for the government as well. I mean, I'm thinking that, you know, a lot of people, when you think of a for-profit company, they think it's, you know, to maximize shareholder value. It's all about the profits. If you want to do something good, go with a nonprofit. So with that kind of mindset of thinking, do you think some investors, traditional investors, have misconceptions about what an impact organization, for-profit organization can do? Yes. Uh, I, I mean, the, the, the barrier is the obvious one, and that is not believing that you can make money while you can drive positive social change or thinking that you have got to make huge concessions uh, to drive social change, uh, financial concessions to drive social change, um, an unwillingness to monetize other outcomes that really turn into your money um, such that you can really broaden your view of ROI so you will take more risk in this particular space. You know, Um, what does it cost to cover Medicaid in the United States of America? So, so how do we invest in companies in a way or what tools do we have in our toolkit that allow us to invest in companies that are going to provide health insurance? I mean, th- th- these, these are these are financial um, kinds of equation of 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 um, of balancing that we just don't do. The conversation just doesn't go there. It goes there at advantage because I offered a different lens and they're like, yeah, well, okay, let's figure that out. Got to make money. And we don't, if we can do that and do this good thing, 
But the obvious barrier is deciding that you cannot be profitable and get good outcomes because you've got your own visual matrix of what the good outcomes cost and what it's going to cost you, da 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 um, unrooted in reality. Mm. When you are looking from top to bottom and bottom to top in your analyses. Um, mm. That's what I would say. The decision-making aspect of that, the leadership decision-making aspect, the listening, you know, a few things that they can do. And if there's one thing you know, folks should take away from this interview today is that there's so many different angles that a business owner can take to intentionally solve one of those problems like you mentioned, whether it's diversity and inclusion, whether it's uh, economic growth and uh, mobility within a underserved community, recidivism, there are angles that you can take that do lead to uh, an increase in the bottom line. If there's one thing you can take away from this conversation now for leaders listening to this, they say, okay, so where do I start? Sandra, where do I begin? How, how can I, I want to make an impact too. How do I do that? What advice personally would you give to them? And so you go to the end of the story. What is it you want to change? Mm. What do you want to focus on? You know, we at Advantage, we don't try to do everything. We want to, we want to grow jobs. We want to grow ranges. We want to make certain folks have got good benefits. Um, we're not going to sink wells in Africa. They're needed desperately. But we're not. Now, again, that's a leadership challenge because you have to figure out what you can do and what you can do well. But I'd say first to leaders start off with what is it you want to change? Hmm. Powerful. The theory of change. What change do you want to see in in the world and working backward from that? Sandra, it's been a pleasure having you on the show today. Thank you so much for this thoughtful and stimulating discussion today. Uh, Let's bring this home now. What is your definition of a real leader? A real leader, in my opinion, is um, an individual who has his eye on the future and can work in the current. Mm. That's for me, is a real leader. He or she is constantly looking over the horizon and thinking about going forward, but is working in the present. And the leaders I admire most pull that future into their reality. They drive change fast. They're looking over the horizon. They're thinking about it. And they're pulling that into their future. I mean, into their present because they are working in the present. That's it for me. Um, That's where change happens when you're looking out and thinking, man, if if I could get this done and then you start where you are. Powerful, powerful. Sandra, thank you so much for coming on the Realtors Podcast. For Sandra and more, I'm Kevin Edwards asking you to go out there, pull the future into the present, and always, folks, keep it real. Thanks, Sandra. Thanks. And thank you, good people, for hanging on to this episode of the Real Leaders Podcast with Sandra and more. We hope you enjoyed it as much as we did. And folks, if you haven't yet left a review on the Realtors Podcast, please do so now and let us know what you think, what you liked, and how we can improve the show. Also, if you want to send me a personal message or recommend someone to come on this show, 
just email me at b at real-leaders.com. That's B-E at real-leaders.com. Lastly, folks, this interview was streamed live on our Crowdcast channel. That's right. And if you want to attend those interviews and ask questions to people like Sandra after the show, make sure you go online to realers.com slash podcast and RSVP for an upcoming interview where you will be notified 10 minutes before we go live. And you can join, ask questions, and be a part of the show. That's it for me. Thanks for being a real leader. And stay tuned for the next episode.